Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. In several countries already, governments use behavioral insights for their policies, but in an early stage, so a lot of pilots have, are being done now, and this green nudges can vary from different kinds of frame in a letter, for instance, or a frame in, a, in an energy bill like this. But it can also be uh, technical nudges. So you can imagine like an, uh, the default setting of your wash machine or your dishwasher. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Today, you're going to hear from a world-renowned climate psychologist, Dr. Gerdian DeFries. Dr. Gerdian DeFries is going to give us some context on how climate psychology impacts individuals and organizations and explore that multidisciplinary overlapping intersection of technology, policy, management, and how psychology ties into all of that. Dr. DeFries is going to give some context about how we as individuals and organizations can approach sustainability or profitability, and from a corporate perspective of what that means from trying to do good without necessarily corporate greenwashing. And lastly, really going to dive into social innovation via the energy transition, and with looking at energy of where we are today and to where we want to go. I know you're all going to enjoy this. This episode's a treat. Take care. Keep on SDG talking. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SDG Talks podcast and to all my DePaul students. Really excited today to have Dr. Gerdian DeFries here today. Gerdian, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's a nice and sunny day here at the, the beachside area of The Hague in the Netherlands. That's wonderful. And I love the, the yellow paint you got in the background. It kind of creates this nice, open, kind of sunny vibe ambiance in there. Yeah, that's what we need, isn't it? In these uh, uh, work at home days. I, yeah. It was white originally, but I was so bored. I, I painted <laughs> it yellow. <laughs> nice. And you, from what I've seen, are the, not necessarily self-proclaimed, but the, the proclaimed climate psychologist. And this is a term that was new to me and I think new to many others. So I'm interested to learn about what <laughs> what this term means. But give me a little context on who is Gerdian? And sort of what led to this road of where you are today and then you being this proclaimed uh, climate psychologist? Yeah, yeah. I, I was also surprised when I was called a climate psychologist. One of our national newspapers did it and I actually liked the term. So did our corporate communication people. They said it's nice to have a label in the field of academics. So I, uh, I am an academic. I work at the University of Technology in Delft in the Netherlands also, very near to, to where I live. Originally, I am trained as a social psychologist and I did a PhD in behavioral sciences. But already during my PhD research, I was very interested in the relation between psychology, energy technology, communication and, uh, well, the whole interaction between it. Also in how not only citizens or consumers in a sustainable world, but also policymakers, uh, industry politicians, etc. So the whole field of actors in the world of energy and climate, etc. was really appealing to me. So I decided after I did my uh, PhD to move on to another university to be able to look at this more from a system perspective than I did as a psychologist. 
because in psychology you are mainly interested in in small mechanisms or factors or revealing new biases or whatever. So that was the field that I was in. But I thought, no, I, I want to, to take this to a higher level. So I am at this higher level now, but the consequence is that I'm one of the, the rare psychologists at a university of technology. And that is sometimes difficult because I'm involved in every kind of yeah, research project or a new uh, educational course or whatever that has to do with my field. But the good thing is there's an expression in Dutch that in the land of the blind, the people with one eye are the king. So that uh, I am a kind of a king. So I can also now easily pick my projects and I can also really now have extra people in. So I have a postdoc, I have a couple of PhD students, etc. And I really enjoy being in this in this field. So and I, I love if, that. The, in the land of the blind, those with one eye are king. How do you say that in Dutch? In het land der blinden is een oog koning. Sounds way more beautiful than said in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we use it very commonly, actually. But um, yeah, is there a similar expression in, in English? You know, there might be, but it's sort of uh, escaping me. But I, I, I think it's my interpretation of it is, you know, if you if sort of, if you have something that I live by is, what is it? If you have the the privilege to know, you have the duty to act. And in part of that sort of all of us come from different situations. But if you know something else that maybe others don't and you have the opportunity to take action on it, then then it's sort of your duty to do something about it. Yeah. But, yeah. And with your with your particular skill, I think also uh, then if other people don't have that skill, then you are the expert. So it's it's also depending on your, uh, what I like about this is that depending on your situation or your context, you can be a king always. So yeah. I, I I like that because- And it's it's not always actually being an expert too. I've heard someone say it's a, a 10% advantage. If you could be 10% better than maybe someone else that uh, you can at least help them or guide them along and give some context, which is part why yeah. we help connect the dots and bring value in different ways for podcasts and webinars and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, I see that that for instance, now that I'm working now in Delft for uh, approximately six years. Yeah. There, we really have the multidisciplinarity in our, in our research and it was already there before I came in my faculty, but now, yeah, we, we also have a lab an energy transition lab. There we work together with people from all different backgrounds. So we have people who are from economics or mm. who are making this agent-based models or whatever. And yeah, we really can. Uh, I love that. And so you, you've mentioned now that term multidisciplinary twice. And I think it's this interesting holistic view of technology, policy, management, and now psychology. And yeah. I think this interaction between how all these things work is important. And over my shoulder, you can see the SDGs mm-hmm. where... The UN did a great job of defining these problems that exist and putting them into buckets. And while there's some things I don't necessarily love that they're putting stuff in silos, I think it was good to define them. But now it's more of how do we find the intersectionality with all that? And I'd love to know from you on all these disciplines exist. Great. But how do we bring them together to create context? But then what I'm even more so interested of taking all this knowledge and turning them into action. Yeah, that second part is difficult, I guess, also for us as researchers, because and, and we also have to think about where, what is our responsibility and not, what do we need to figure out and give it to other people to act upon? 
then how can we then recommend things or not? So in my case, I study psychological mechanisms, but also I study how people behave and how people change their behavior. And sometimes it's very hard to say you, if you do this and this, people will change. And sometimes you, there's an ethical aspect in that as well. So you can do harm with that information as well. If you know how you can change people, you can also change them in the wrong direction, of course. And I, I always feel that, that that is not my responsibility. I, I, my responsibility is to make sure that, that what I study, that I can explain it and I explain it to others. And I will always say something in my talks, for instance, about ethical use of information. If you are a psychologist and you know about how humans think and how humans make up their acts and, and decisions, that comes with a responsibility. But I cannot be responsible in the end. So I work a lot with, with policymakers, but of course also politicians sometimes want to ask your opinion or uh, foundations or NGOs or whatever. So there is also, you have to decide for yourself. For me, I, had, I decided for myself that I share my information and my knowledge publicly. That's also why I like to work with you here and then and talk to uh, talk with you in this podcast because it's important that many people know what we do and how we do it and so that you also are if you're not a policymaker or a lobbyist but you are just the general audience that you know that that this happens also that that's yeah people are researching human behavior in in relation with these sdgs yeah and and one thing you said there, the ethical use of information, I haven't heard it phrased that way before, but obviously there's so much data being created these days now. And, and maybe there's, even within the algorithms that exist, there's different ways how we can manipulate people to do something or not do something. Give me a little more context on that. The ethical use of information, What what is that, how does that apply to climate action or climate psychology from a you know, a policy level or an individual human action level? Yeah, and on, on all levels. So, so there are certain psychological mechanisms that play a role in how people behave. So for instance, people are very sensitive for what other people like us do. So we are sensitive to what our neighbors do, for instance, or our friends or peers or family. So this norm, this social norm is very influential and psychologists, for instance, study in what way this is influential and also come up with experiments to make use of this social norm. So you can, you can use that in a, a good way. So, but then it's up to who to decide what is good. But okay, you can use this, for instance, by it is being used in experiments with energy bills, for instance, that you know that you see on your energy bill the use of your neighbors. So if you know that your neighbors are using less energy than you do, that might be a signal that you also need to use less energy. It also works the other way around, of course. If the, the neighbors use more, then you can think, okay, I can take an extra long shower today. Yeah. But you can also think about that, you, that these kinds of nudges are used in a wrong way. You can make use of this norm in a bad way if you describe a norm that is not beneficial for the well-being of the large public. And I, one book I reference a lot is, is Soft Power by Joseph Nye. And it, it, I don't know if, you, if you've heard of it, but it talks a lot about the poor thing I always reference is carrots and sticks and different incentives or yeah. punishments to get people to do stuff. And, and I think what you mentioned of making data accessible to either make someone look good or make someone look bad, that can go both ways. 
and I know when I was in China, I think I, I remember it was in Shenzhen and they, they did something where they publicly shamed people for traffic violations in, in crossing the streets where then it was sort of embarrassing to do something illegal and unless people did it. And I remember some people thinking how inhumane it was. And it's, it's maybe a little bit of a interesting way to go about getting people to not do something. But yeah, I think how, how maybe that's not the best example, but these green nudges that you speak of, of with the, you mentioned just like the energy bill or water bill, what, how else are green nudges being applied or, or being created or, or attempted to be applied today that might be relevant? Yeah, so, so these green nudges are now more and more applied in, by governance. And so I'm, I'm a member of the, a platform from the International Energy Agency with experts from different countries. And we, we just released a report on uh, behavioral insights in energy policy from different samples. And, and so we can see that in several countries already, governments use behavioral insights for their policies, but in an early stage, so a lot of pilots have, are being done now. And this green nudges can vary from different kinds of frame in a letter, for instance, or a frame in a, an energy bill like this. But it can also be uh, technical nudges. So you can imagine that in, like an, uh, the default setting of your wash machine or your dishwasher. I just bought a new dishwasher and the, the, the default setting was the eco setting. So that is a longer but cleaner setting. And that is already a green nudge because it's easier for people to use a default than to think about, okay, I have to switch another to another button. So th these kinds of technical nudges are also uh, happening. So you, I like that you just said about the carrot and the sticks because that's, these are, of course, two types of policy instruments. You also have the sermon, so information, giving information. And these, these are more the traditional policy instruments. So, so you can either punish people or reward them or tell them what to do. And this behavioral part is now a newcomer to the, to the policy instrument toolbox so that you, that you can actually make use of this knowledge that we already have from psychology. And you can either use it upfront and really do it well and make sure that your policy is completely aligned with uh, psychology and that you can test it and that you can, yeah, can actually make sure that this psychological mechanism was the reason that your policy is effective or not. But there are all kinds of, you can also say, okay, we just use the theory that we have and we don't test it, but we, we use it. And yeah, you can also in hindsight sometimes say, okay, this policy was effective because it made use by accident of a psychological mechanism that we can explain if we think about it and analyze it, but was never the purpose of the policymaker. So Love that's, that. uh, yeah, but I, I, I never heard about the, of the book that you showed. So nice to hear about. Uh, yeah, I got, got, a, got a couple on this, this bookshelf that might be of use. Another one that I think you've, that we've talked about, and it actually Amsterdam's implemented the whole concept, Donut Economics, Kate Raworth. I know Amsterdam and yeah. Netherlands have been big on that. One thing you mentioned that I liked was eco is by default. And I think changing that culture of, and, and maybe this might tie into eco, it sounds, steps into the sort of greenwashing. Like what does eco mean? Uh -huh. uh, just eco by default of a, okay, yeah, dishwashers and, and washing machines. We can, there's still a major economic and carbon footprint that goes into making it and using it. But for what I, for whatever we believe, those are not going away the rest of our lives. There's humans are going to participate in hygiene. And so how can we make washing machines more eco? I get that. 
but from other industries in this sort of, you know, trying to be sustainable, but also trying to manage some aspect of profitability while also trying to look good for their stakeholders. This term eco ties into this whole concept of greenwashing, where it's tough because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people are demonizing companies and saying, why aren't you doing more? And then some companies do stuff and then people are like, oh, they're just greenwashing. So it's kind of a, it's a hard balance that some companies are doing it great. Some companies are just doing it as a PR stint. A lot in what I just asked, but what are your thoughts in question comments or insights from that whole concept yeah i, I did some research on, on on perceptions of greenwashing what is different that is different than greenwashing of course because people can perceive that companies are greenwashing no matter what the truth is and a lot of companies that have by nature a dirty image so to speak so uh, they fall victim to this because Sometimes it seems that whatever they do, they cannot do well enough because people are quick to say that they are greenwashing. And of course, there are real stories about greenwashing if an oil company spends uh, more of its budget on fossil fuels than on renewable fuels, but spends also more of its communication budget on promoting the fact that they are doing so well in the green area then that can be seen as greenwashing because then it appears or they, it seems that they want to emphasize that they are doing, that they are very green, but then in reality, they're not, they are more gray than green, so to speak. So, so that is one side, but the other side is, and I, I also talk to, to oil and, and gas companies sometimes, they are really, they really have the intention to invest more in renewables and are looking for ways to, change their company or their investments. But then still, of course, you could say, yeah, the only the only uh, way to go completely green is to stop your business because then, yeah, oil and gas can be, are still maybe not as good as wind as so- and solar. Uh, but then you get the whole discussion, of course, what, what do we need? But then uh, I really like that discussion because one of my uh, postdocs is now looking into degrowth and looking at the whole, the larger system and what kind of path are we taking and do we still need economic growth? Do we need to balance economic growth and cleaner world or do we radically have to break our paths and say, okay, we, we, cannot, we cannot grow anymore like this. We must stop growing and take action to save the earth unless there's nothing to grow and because we don't survive. But that's interesting. And another thing that I was... I was I was intrigued by I read a paper a couple of months ago about a tourism that is really not that, that yeah so it was a, a type of hotel I think they don't want to be seen as green so they are actually secretly very green and and act in a very sustainable way but they don't show it at all because they want to look very luxurious and they think that some of their clients won't come to the hotel if they would perceive the hotel as a sustainably perfect hotel. So I, I was also intrigued by that. So like they that. do the opposite. I mean, I think that's a good way. But they are, I'm not a, sure. Show, show, me, show me, don't tell me. I mean, if it's easy to write a press release and to hire some videographer to do some snazzy post. But I think, as we know, consumers are very conscious of this these days. And while that is important to showcase from a PR perspective, I'd rather you show me, don't tell me. What was that hotel? And, and I was also wondering, 
No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I have to, uh, to to look that up because it was, I think, in, in England, in the UK. And it was, yeah, so they had this internal uh, green identity, but an, a not green image. And, and they wanted to keep it that way. So, yeah, it's... it's and I, I think I forgot it because it just came up now we are talking about this. I forgot the name. They had this other name than greenwashing that really also suits it well. Okay. I will look it up and then mail it to you. Yeah, great. Well, one thing you you were talking about too was with energy. Energy is important in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's from it's what's charging my computer right now. That's allowing me to have this podcast. It charged my phone last night to allow me to send WhatsApp to my friends around the world. Energy is something that we rely on each and every day. And I think one of the challenges with energy is that oftentimes big energy companies are demonized because of how they're extracting fossil fuels and and hurting the environment. But it's also energy is what keeps the lights on. And it's just now, Mm -hmm. but one thing I, I think about a lot is the whole concept of does it need to get worse before it gets better within our energy transition? Is oil and, and natural gas, are these are these just transitionary fuels that can allow us to get to a point to where we can be 100% renewable so we're not degrading the earth in the, at the rate and speed we are? So give me a little context about your work with the energy policy transition and you know, does it have to get worse before it gets better as we approach this this energy conundrum that we're in? Yeah, so I'm not sure how it is in your country, but we, we have a real like uh, energy transition. So we actually have goals and we have policies made to get to those call, uh, goals. So we have, for instance, a heat transition uh, that we try to um, get all of the buildings and houses off the natural gas so that we actually are going to use electric heating for instance, or geothermal heating, so heating from the earth or biogas or whatever. There are a lot of possibilities. Also, hydrogen is an option. So there is a lot of things going on here in changing the technology of energy. So that's the part of energy transition. So in carbon dioxide reduction policy, you actually have three pillars. I Well, there are more, but I, I always use these three energy transition. So we have to go to a new system. If we want to reduce the the, the carbon footprint, there's energy efficiency. So we have to be more, we have to save energy and use less to to have this uh, smaller footprint. And there's climate adaptation. So that is actually the, the step that is least developed because it's the youngest one in which so we are going to say okay some of the effects of climate change are irreversible and we have to deal with them i live in the netherlands and we live half of our country lives below the sea level so you can imagine that for us it is important to adapt to rising sea levels and we we do that already we have delta works which are technologically excellent uh, engineering stuff already here for over 50 years because it's it's um, yeah it's needed, but these kinds of things you have to think about also with energy transition that we that we need to use different sources, and yeah, so, uh, also Germany that's the country next to us does it in a different way. They they are more looking. Well, maybe I'm saying something stupid now because I'm not so deep into the technical stuff, but. Uh, in my uh, perception, they are more into nuclear energy than, than we are, for instance. So they make different choices. And in, in, in Germany, it's called the Energiewende. That's also a term that they used for the whole transition from 
the current use of energy to a new new way. But the choices are different because in some countries, natural gas is all already seen as, as a sustainable energy source. And yeah, we are more moving from natural gas to other sources. I mean, you put the word, word natural in front of it and all of a sudden it seems, ooh, it's like, you know, the whole notion of organic or it just yeah, all of a sudden yeah, yeah. you put natural in front of it and it, it seems the psychology as a consumer makes you feel like it's you're doing something good or it, it makes it feel like it's not nearly as bad. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, these, this, these frames are very important for the perception of the public, of course. I think there's an, uh, an American documentary or movie, isn't it, about fracking? Is it? I'm not sure what it. I, I saw it a couple of years ago about. Um, yeah, it did yeah. come out. I need to need to. I'll reference that one here in the note, the show notes, but not not entirely sure. But yeah, it's it's one of those things. I I know from be, working in the water industry, it's it's very disruptive for watersheds. I mean, just because you're just disrupting everything in the in the different the yeah. different place below the ground and all that water. Some of it is recouped, but a lot of that water and all the all the byproducts of everything goes into the watersheds and, and just kind of crushes the watersheds, which is the the water that a lot of different areas in rural America gets the water from with being on wells. And it's tough because yeah. it seems like with every different energy source, there's an externality, even even with solar and wind. And may, maybe it, I'd love to know some context there of as great as solar and wind are touted out to be, there's a lot of energy that goes into the creation of those energy sources, as well as mm-hmm. there are externalities to the neg- positive and, and particularly negative effects of both wind and solar. Any thoughts or things that you can shed light on that? Well, the only thing that we do and we know from our research is that, that it's not, there's not much, much resistance to the technology itself, but there's much resistance to, for instance, the noise of uh, wind the propellers of the, the windmills, the, the aesthetics of it, that it's a bit, that it's not nice to look at. A lot of those things are, are more of the problem. So a lot of people, that's the NIMBY effect, not in my backyard. A lot of people like the ideas of wind farms, but not close to their uh, neighborhoods because then they, uh, they are bothered by it. So solar panels are actually very well accepted. Um, also, not only because of its sustainability, but also uh, because it's cheaper. That's a stereotype of the Dutch people that we like things to be uh, if things are cheap. So we we a lot of people have solar panels on the roofs. But I, I think there's also a cultural, or maybe not only cultural, also ge- geographical difference. Of course, that you see in also in countries like Australia and maybe also uh, in the USA, there's more space. Also, to to for instance, for a solar farm or a wind farm, there might be more places in the USA to do that than a like an, an empty field somewhere. Well, here in the Netherlands, we are very crowded. So everywhere you build something, it's, you will see it probably. So there's always a problem. So at, at this moment, we are building wind parks at, at the sea, so in the sea. And that actually also is, again, very technically challenging. But what I hear from my engineer colleagues, it's also very fun to think about all those things, how to drill a windmill into the ocean. <laughs> sort of the, the bottom of the ocean, of course, that it keeps there and will not yeah, fall over. Yeah, that's an engineering feat in itself. And it's fine. I, I do I do like that concept of not in my backyard where it always seems attractive and great until it's something that is directly impacting you. And I actually, I drive from Chicago to Indianapolis all the time. And 
there's a big wind field and big bunch of wind turbines as you drive by. And I personally find that it, watching windmills turn in the distance is sort of a soothing experience. And I think it's mm-hmm. a sort of a nice, to me, representation of where we are and especially where we can go and living in harmony with the earth and finding mm-hmm. different ways. And I, I've become very fond of the whole study of biomimicry and finding different ways where we can copy nature to do what we need to do to be sustainable humans on this earth. And there's quite a bit of wind. And if there's different way, and I've also seen other types of wind turbines come into the market of some shape like DNA helixes and some that can be more applicable towards being actually on your house. That's not just like the standard wind turbine, but I think it's just the part, the, the technology becoming more accessible and, and cost effective, but just the continued acceptance of moving away from the traditional energy norms, which is happening, but obviously there's always challenges and naysayers and haters within the process. Yeah, and it's, it's, it also differs on, on uh, your own situation, of course. So um, uh, if, if you look at, at, for instance, if you want to make more sustainable choices in your own life, for you, getting rid of your car would be a great sacrifice, I would say. Well, for me, it isn't because I live in this very dense area with buses and trams and trains everywhere. So I can go everywhere, literally 10 meters before my house is a bus stop. And there are only a few places in my country where there are there is no public transport. So that's, that's for us not a, not a big sacrifice, maybe. That's also interesting that we, and the things that we are looking on, looking at. But what are the tipping points, for instance, for people to change and for willing to change? Because... Yeah, I, I always say I'm not a priest. I, I'm not saying that everybody should live more sustainably. That's your own choice and your own considerations, of course. But yeah, I find it interesting to also hear from people what their considerations are. So when what value is for you important and what is decisive for you to change your behavior and yeah. what is then the tipping point? If you are sure that you're children will die uh, aged 20. If you don't change, you will probably change something in your behavior. But yeah. yeah. Actually, last last night in our guest lecture, we had Olivia Tyler, who I feel like you would get along with very well. She's very knowledgeable, climate sustainable, the consultant and professional. And she gave her, her 10 insights. And one of her insights or two, two of her insights that I think are applicable to what you just said is not everyone has to do everything all the time. And, and don't always put your head on someone else's body where they may not think the exact same way that you do. And that's okay, but you can look to try and make baby steps. And it's yeah. not that you have to all of a sudden go vegan, all of a sudden you know, 100% use solar, that you 100% you stop using your car. It is about trying to find those baby steps. Like we want to shoot for disruption, but we also need to be practical with realizing that we have grown up within these systems, not saying these systems are great, but we do need to work within the confines of existing structures, make small incremental changes to help build the, the business case and the social case to then make larger leap changes. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And one part of my research is on the, the hassle factor. So uh, that that perceived hassle in your decision or your changes is a great barrier for people uh, for, for sustainable behavior. It starts with if you want to have, for instance, solar panels on your roof, you have to find out a constructor, the, what kind of roofs or panels do you want to buy? It will be a mess in your house if the people are coming in. A lot of those small micro stressors could really stop 
you being green and and I always say, okay, the, if you analyze for yourself your goal, where where do you want to be? And that can be a very yeah short short side. It's not a good word, but a goal that's not so far away. But it can also be a, a, a like completely a disruptive goal. Like I want to go vegan and get rid of my car. But then if you break that up and you see it as a journey and you break it up in several steps and you analyze for yourself, okay, what are the barriers for me and can I? break down the barriers and are, is it hassle? Is it perceptions of hassle or is it true hassle? Is it money? Is it technology? Is it, so if you analyze that and can yeah make a plan, it's like also a financial plan. Maybe if you want to save money to buy something, yeah, it makes it easier. Yeah. But then it's easy, easier said than done. If you, I, for myself also, I find it very hard all the time to be as sustainable as I would like to, I mean, we're because just, I also we're all like people. driving. My, yeah. And they're yeah. humans. And I think it's, it's easy to point the finger at, at other people and say, why would you do this? And then looking at ourselves and it's like, Oh, we do the same thing. And yeah, yeah. we are humans and it's okay to not be perfect. Yeah, definitely. Perfect is also something different for different people. Of course. Uh, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. So two questions I want to ask to kind of wrap it up and, and feel free to answer it in either order is within the context of what we've talked about, or it could be something else completely different. What is something that you're most excited about in regards to your work or climate psychology or transportation or, or you know, Dutch culture or whatever it may be? And then on the flip side, what's something that keeps you up at night and you're terrified about? What? keeps me up at night and I'm terrified about and I think you mean in relation to my work, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so, relation so to work. That, yeah. <laughs> I think that is the idea that we are as human beings not capable of acting on time so that we cannot stop the earth from warming up and that the, the, the sea levels are rising. I live very close to the sea. What I said, our country is partly under sea level what happens then? And we have to migrate then. So there's a different problem then because people have to, cannot live in the place that we, that, that can, I'm an optimist by nature. So it's not actually keeping me up at night because I, I have a kind of faith that we will change maybe with drastic measures and maybe with rules and laws and like a dictator of the earth that says we have to stop now everybody on the whole earth. Otherwise we are going to die. But that's something that worries me. And what excites me is yeah, also in the field of psychology and what I said in the beginning to make the circle round, we are working in this multidisciplinary academic field and we use AI to make things that we can do research that we couldn't do before because of the progress of technology, for instance, because that's the, also the flip side of having energy, that we have a lot of energy to build strong computers and do a lot of research that we couldn't do before to help also the energy transition and maybe uh, climate change being not, not as negative as we as we think. So I'm excited about my work and field and the things that we can do in, in the future and that we that we can do things like this, that you are now at the other end of the world and I'm here and we're talking about these kinds of issues. It's really exciting, I think. And the other thing, yeah, I hope we are we are on time. We can and, and for for me personally also I hope I can have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> In, the, in 10 years with my work and, and can say, okay, this really helped Earth. That, that would be perfect, of course. But 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think you're well on that track, Gerdian. And I, I hope that this is one of the many things that builds the aura and the momentum. And I think I'm excited to continue to learn and engage more. And if, if listeners and everyone in the class wanted to follow up or just, you know, what would be the best area for them to, to check out, to learn more about all the work you're doing or how, what are the, the places that they could go to take some action on your work? Yeah, I, I publish a lot. So uh, if people would like to follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn or uh, look at my profile at the TU Delft and see uh, so the, uh, not only my academic publications, but the, because that might be sometimes hard to follow, but I also write blogs and um, have, have more yeah, like shorter publications about my work because I really find it important, as I said earlier, to uh, share our insights with a larger audience. So, yeah. yeah. And, and if people have questions or want to reach out, uh, please do so. My, uh, I have an open Twitter account so and uh, people can ask me questions there. Or I, I like the fact to have open science. So if you have questions, do it on Twitter because then I can answer and other people can also read the answer. That's better than sending me emails. I appreciate that. And I, I saw even all your academic work was... You didn't need any academic license or any special login to, to access, or at least a couple I clicked. Yeah. So I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. just, uh, let's get it out there. Let's talk about it and let's continue to move the ball here. And and Dr. Gerdian DeFries, it's been such a joy and a pleasure to, to learn from you. And I'm really excited to allow others to learn from you as well. And I'm excited to follow your future work and stay in touch. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.